Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. As any good self-respecting physician, you know, we're always thinking about leadership and thinking about ways we can improve our leadership skill set. It's something I've actually been interested in before I went into medicine and I've always been interested in what makes a good leader. How do we build teams? How do we lead teams? How do teams come together and function at the highest level? And, you know, I've read my share of leadership books. One that came out. Uh, recently is one called Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win. And it's by two Navy SEALs, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Uh, Jocko Willink is joining us today on the podcast to talk about the book uh, and some of the experiences that are discussed in the book and how they translate to everyday life and particularly how they translate to medicine. Jocko was 20 years in the SEAL teams. He was a SEAL operator and then as a SEAL officer. Uh, he led SEAL Task Unit Bruiser during the Battle of Ramadi. Uh, during the uh, war in Iraq. Uh, subsequent to that, he became the officer in charge of training for all West Coast SEAL teams. I think it's fair to say that in terms of having perspective on leadership uh, in working with diverse groups, leadership in high-pressure environments, uh, Jocko has rare experience. Uh, the book is really interesting. Um, I was a little bit skeptical going into it when I first started reading it. I actually found it to be very useful um, and uh, incredibly compelling. Uh, we were really lucky for him to be able to carve out a little time uh, as his uh, the profile of the book has certainly grown. Interest in the book has grown. Uh, so we're very grateful that he was able to carve out a little bit of time to sit down with us. So without further ado, Jocko Willink. Jocko, thank you so much for joining me on Explore the Space. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I, as a physician, I, I enjoy reading leadership books. I have you know a leadership portfolio and always trying to find new clues and uh, new ideas that I can learn from and, and, and deploy in my own work. When your book came out, Extreme Ownership, that you co-wrote with your, uh, your fellow Navy SEAL, Leif Babin, I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit skeptical. Um, I said, I'm going to read this book. I am not sure how they are going to be able to translate some of the most intense and harrowing experiences a human being can go through and translate that in a manner that I can even digest, let alone figure out how to utilize uh, in a hospital setting. But congratulations, because you guys absolutely carried it off. As you were putting the book together, did you think that that was going to be a problem? Well, actually, when we started putting the book together, we had already been working with civilian companies in every sector of business for about two and a half years. So we knew what the correlations were and we knew that we could translate them. You know, whether we knew we were going to get this kind of reception, I, I wouldn't be so bold as to say we, we recognize that. But the companies that we had worked with had definitely been impacted by it. And so we had a pretty good feeling that it would that it would be translatable and people would understand it and grab onto it. There are themes in the book that are germane to sort of any part of the human experience. And I, the other thing I was wondering is, am I going to find things in here that are going to pertain to medicine? And there's just, uh, there's things in here in the book that pertain to all forms of professional life, personal life. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a triumph in that respect. With respect to medicine, though, and that's one of the things that when I reached out to you, I said, you know, I think that there are some really specific things that we can connect to here. There's a chapter in the book that was called Decentralized Command, and that got into a part of medical practice that 
is really important because within medicine, it's this idea of activating leaders, even people who may not want to be a leader or don't recognize themselves as a leader. Can you break down this concept of decentralized command a little bit? Well, decentralized command is really an extremely critical part of handling any situation as a leader. And it's critical because as a leader, regardless of how good you are and how smart you are and how capable you are and how much experience you have, you still can't handle everything yourself. And so decentralized command, what it means is you're going to push that, push your responsibility, push the authority down to the the subordinates underneath you and allow them to go out and execute on the battlefield and make decisions and make things happen on their own. And it is, it is absolutely essential. You know, when I'm out there in charge of a hundred guys out there on the battlefield, you, there's no way any human can control a hundred guys in a firefight. It's simply impossible. No one has the, the cognitive capacity or the omnipotent sense of what's happening all around them to be able to pull that off. So what you've got to do is you've got to empower your junior leaders to take charge and carry things out. Now, where that can run astray and, and, you know, another piece of the book that I talk about, is, or another thing that we talk about in the book is balance. And definitely it requires balance um, because as you, as you push the, and you empower your, your junior leaders, they've got, to, um, they've got to understand very clearly what the parameters are and what the mission is and what your overall intent is and what end state you're heading for. Otherwise, if you just tell everyone to go out and lead, whatever direction they want, you know, you're going to have mayhem on the battlefield. So what you've got to do is you've got to give them very clear, very concise guidance that they fully understand. They've got to understand the strategic mission. They've got to understand what the end state is and the restrictions and parameters that they're working within. And once you've done that, they can, you can set them free and they can make things happen. And it gives you a lot more power as a leader. When you run into the issue though, of as you're trying to empower your, you know, the people below you to go forth and, you know, with that sense of, of shared purpose of a shared goal, when they maybe resist that a little bit, when they don't really want to do that and don't necessarily recognize whether they like it or not, they are a leader, you know, for physicians, whether you like it or not, you're a leader in the room. That's just the way it is. Um, it's not something that's emphasized in medical training, I think to our detriment. Um, how do we activate that person when they're saying, look, I'm on this team. I'm going to go forth and do the work, but I don't want to be looked upon as someone who is also going to lead part of that team. Yeah. What you have to do in a situation like that is you have to stop being the easy button as a leader. (laughs) So it's really easy for your subordinates to come back to you and say, hey, I've got a tough decision to make. Make it for me. Uh And you got to just say, hey, I'm not doing that. That's your job. You got to take leadership. You got to take ownership of that. I'll back you up whatever decision you make. Go. And you've you've got you can't be the easy button. That's something that I learned pretty early on. Is if you want people to be leaders, then you got to let them lead, and you got to, in some cases, as you're talking about, you got to force them to get out there, force them to get out of their comfort zone, take risks on their own, make decisions on their own, and um, you know, welcome to big boy country. You're in charge, <laughs> right? Now you've obviously been in charge of large numbers of men both when you were deployed overseas in Iraq and then also in charge of West Coast Navy SEAL training, were there a few things that you could reliably do, a few levers you could reliably pull to help the person who was a little bit unsure of themselves within, in terms of being a leader, in terms of 
feeling comfortable when eyes are on them to make a decision to help them feel a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more assured so that they can go forth. And the next time the eyes are on them and everyone's looking at them to make a big decision in an important moment to feel comfortable and to be successful. Yes, I definitely had a methodology for bringing people through that transition, but I will tell you very directly that it wasn't like a soft and gentle um, methodology of of coddling people along. Mm-hmm. You know, I would put people into the fire, and I would put them in charge of, of either operations or training operations, and say, "Hey, you're going to go run this, make it happen." And they're going to get the eyes on them. They've got to step up. And, and they really, in, in those situations, are left with no choice. So what do you got to do? You got to step up. And over time, you get comfortable with it. It's funny that you mentioned that. When I was one of the most indelible memories I have as a medical student, I was taking an oral examination from a general surgeon when I was finishing my general surgery rotation. And he was asking me questions. And the tempo of the interview was kind of going up and up and up. And I was still doing okay. And he asked me a very specific thing. He said, what would you do here? And I said, well, I would consider this and I would consider that. He leaned forward on his desk, put his hands on his desk, got right in my face and said, MD stands for make decisions. What are you going to do right now? I've never forgotten that. And look, not to overstate what we do in medicine, but there are moments where you absolutely just need to make a decision. It's hard, I think, sometimes for people to not just want that pressure, but to feel comfortable in that pressure. And I think that some comes somewhat with experience, but also the the piece that you mentioned when you were in that oral exam, you were verbalizing what a good leader should do. And that is consider this, consider that. What are the consequences? What are the risks? What are the chances? Where do we end up if this goes bad? Where do we end up if it goes good? That's what a leader does. And once you look at those uh various, once you look at those variables, that's when you, yes, you have to make a decision. <laughs> and and uh, I, I've never heard that before, not being a physician, but MD standing for make decision. That's a, uh, that's very appropriate. Th- th- that gets to some, one of the next things that I wanted to kind of tease out as I'm reading the book, you use some incredibly stark, dramatic, frightening moments to illustrate some of these leadership points And a lot of it does boil down to this concept of emergency decision-making. And the reason that I wanted to talk about this, it pairs with this idea of physicians are going to be leaders reluctantly or not. When you're in that moment, hopefully it's not a crisis. But look, sometimes in medicine, we do have patients who deteriorate right in front of us. How do we not just in that moment make the decision, but make sure that the team is comfortable, that the decision we're making is sound and that we can start, we can start moving, we can go get that medication, we can go do this procedure, we, we are heading in the right direction, that the family can feel assured. There, the lessons are there. How do, the, how do we leverage that decision-making in a high-pressure environment so that everyone knows that we're going to be moving on the right track? Well, you know, this is one of the things I talked about a little bit in the book. I definitely talked about it on the Tim Ferriss podcast, if you've heard that, or the Joe Rogan podcast that I was on. As a quick aside, if you haven't listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast, there'll be a link on my site. It is a must listen. Um, And I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to make sure people do get to that one because it's an outstanding interview. Sorry. Well, well, thank you. uh, But one of the things I talk about during that is this idea of detachment Uh and of really removing yourself from the emotions of the situation and that is really the way for me that I was able to make clear decisions in pressure situations. So all this mayhem and all this chaos is going on and all this pressure is on me. 
And yet I would step outside of my own head and kind of observe the situation from a better vantage and a, and a more clear vantage point, And that would allow me to make decisions. So I think as if you feel yourself, if you feel that pressure of a decision on you, that's a time when you got to say, okay, take a step back, take, take a breath, relax. Let's look around. Let's assess. Let's detach. Let's make, make sure I'm not getting wrapped up in this situation too tight and make a good, clear decision. So I, so I think detachment is a very important piece of making decisions under pressure. The value in that too, I think, and it's something that I've worked on and I've talked with colleagues about and, and helped people that I've observed as well is people can sense if you're unsettled or stressed. So if your team is sensing that, would you agree that their confidence in you might degrade a little bit? Absolutely. As a leader, you've got to, you've got to maintain your calm and that doesn't mean you need to be a robot. And you know, again, that's another thing we talk about in the book. It doesn't mean that you, you should be a robot, but for sure, if you are crumbling under pressure or losing your temper or are extremely nervous about something, your, your subordinates and your troops aren't going to have confidence in what you're doing. They're going to see that, that, um, emotion that has a part of you or has, has some kind of control over you. And you, so, so you got to be very careful that you remain calm. And one of the best ways to remain calm is to detach yourself from that situation emotionally and take a step back and make your decisions from a better vantage point. When you're developing this skill set and you are trying to do the best that you can, inevitably you're going to deal with some failure. It's something that we learn. Most professions obviously have this. The work that you did in the SEALs, being a physician, failure is going to happen. And for a lot of people who rise into leadership positions, dealing with failure can be a real challenge. It can be very, very difficult. Again, it's a theme that's explored somewhat in the book, but in dealing with failure and then overcoming it and using it as a tool to improve yourself the next time, there's a moment of inertia there. There's a moment where it's like, Oh my God, I just, this is, this sucks. Breaking through that moment of inertia. How do you speak to that a little bit? Well, well, failure, no doubt is the premium mere teacher. (laughs) And that is the thing where you learn the most. It is where you pay the most attention. Um, For me, I always had a hard time with, you know, failing just like anybody else. It's not fun. It impacts your ego. It makes you look bad. It's horrible. But I found that absolutely the most liberating thing from that, that pain of failure is to embrace it and grab a hold of it and say, you know what? I failed. I take responsibility for this and I am going to make sure it doesn't happen again or correct what the problem was. And I found that once I began to do that, it became my habit and my kind of my standard operating procedure. And then failure still, of course, bothers me and I don't like to fail. You want to do a good job, but at least I knew, I knew how to deal with it. I know how to deal with it. And that is, you got to stand up, take ownership of it, figure out how to solve it and make sure it doesn't happen again. That's the part of the, like you say, it's that idea of owning it and just saying, you know what, this, this was us. This was, this was me. This was our team. This is how we're going to try to resolve it and, and make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, but it is that piece of, personal, taking it very, very personally. And 
really <laughs> it can it can resonate a little bit and it can be it can be very destructive when that gets into a team when a team feels like wow we're struggling or we're not doing the things we need to do how do you then write that ship if if they're going to look to you to say we have we've had a bad outcome something hasn't gone well how do you help the team sort of look pivot a little bit and start moving again in that right direction because it's obviously can be very impactful when something goes awry well that's one of the best things about this attitude of ownership and and that is it spreads it, yeah. you know if yeah. if you're working for me mark and something goes wrong with our team we make a mistake we do something wrong we have a bad we have a mission failure and i say to you hey mark you know, this was your fault. You screwed this up. You didn't pay attention. You didn't do a good job. That's why we failed. What's your immediate reaction to that? I don't care who you are. You are going to get defensive. You are going to actually point the finger back at me. You're going to point the finger at someone else. And that negativity is going to spread. And that, that blame game is going to spread. Now, contrarily, let's say it was you that made a critical mistake on our mission that I was in charge of. And I said to you, Hey, you know what, Mark? We, we had something go wrong. I don't think I did a good enough job explaining it to you, what, what your task was and why you were doing it. And I think that's why we messed up. I want to make sure that doesn't happen again. What can I do to better prepare you next time so that, so that we don't fail this mission again? Now, what is your attitude going to be? You're probably going to look at me and say, hey, you know what, Jocko? You're right. You could have explained it to me better, but I'm a professional. I should have known better. And here's what I'm going to do to fix it next time. And that goes through the whole chain of command. And the next thing you know, instead of having a bunch of people that are blaming each other, you end up with a bunch of people that are solving problems, a bunch of individuals that are all working towards that strategic mission, towards solving the individual problems that you had that caused failure. And that's why it's so powerful in a team environment. The underlying assumption here that obviously you are very good at, and I think people that you subsequently that you work with subsequently are very good at very good at there is a level of personal investment just in hearing you talk to me about that i was like yeah this is going to work differently this is going to work better you have to have it sounds like you make a very specific interest in making sure that your teammates know that your investment in them and their goals is as profound and deep as your investment in yourself well honestly i would tell you that my investment in my team is more important mm-hmm. than my investment in me. Mm-hmm. You know, I am definitely put all, all, would put all my guys ahead of my own personal needs. Absolutely. There's no question about that. And the other piece, piece of it is, is um, I got asked this the other day, you know, they said, Oh, you, you sound like you really believe in what you're saying. And I said, that is because I really do believe in what <laughs> right, I am saying. Right, right, right. And, and so that belief in the mission is what is so important because like you just said earlier, people can tell. People can tell when you're not telling the truth. People can tell when you don't believe in something and they're not going to really follow you the way they need to in a in a critical situation if you don't truly believe in what you're doing and they don't see that. So you've got to believe in your mission. And obviously that can be challenging if the mission is something that you don't fully understand and maybe you are questioning what the mission is. And, you know, we talk about that in the book, you know, we talk about the fact that, that myself as the leader, as our mission changed in Iraq and how I had to understand the new mission 
I had to, I had to take it on board and I had to get in my own head to a point where I believed in what we were doing. And that doesn't mean just blindly saying, okay, now I believe. No, I've asked the questions and figured out how is this new mission going to help us strategically as a country win the war. And once I understood that, then I was then I was good to go and I could go to all my guys and explain to them what we were doing and why we're doing it and pass that belief down the chain of co- down the chain of command. So that's very important. You absolutely got to believe in what you're doing. When you have someone that maybe spins off a little bit, you know, in medicine, the term disruptive behavior comes up a lot. Someone is not, they're, they're, they're not functioning in that team format. And even though medicine is a very individualized thing, we are more and more, we're part, we're part of larger and larger teams. Reeling them back in, reeling that person back in who spun off for whatever reason can be a challenge. And it seems like you would obviously take a probably a very direct approach in helping that person kind of come back to the fold. What have you found to be the best tools to to help that person that's going to stay a part of your team come back in and kind of be reintegrated? Well, first of all, people, I think, generally assume that because I'm a big caveman looking human being, that my approach to everything is super direct and I come at every problem with a full frontal assault. And it, it's actually not true. You have to have more tact than that. Mm-hmm. And in a situation where you're, you're dealing with somebody that's uh, causing disruptive behavior or they're spinning off or they're starting to go sideways on something, what do you do there? Well, the, the most important thing to me in, in a team environment is that you have good relationships with the people you're working with. And that relationship is what's going to hold people together and hold the team together. And it's not a relationship, you know, it's, it's, it's not a relationship that you'd have with a really good friend of yours or a relationship that you'd have with, you know, a girlfriend. It's not that type of relationship. I'm talking about this, this other kind of relationship of how people work together, a working relationship and building that. And sometimes it does cross into the lines of where you have real friends and, and brothers and, and that that's great. But what I'm saying is it's based on relationship. That's how you're going to bring people back in. That's how you're going to make them understand what the mission is. That's how you're going to get them back on board with what you're doing. And how do you build relationships? You build relationships by listening to people. So when I got somebody that's spinning off, the first thing I'm going to do is sit down and listen to them. I'm going to say, okay, what, what's going on? What's happening? Where are you at? What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? I'm actually going to take blame. I'm actually going to take blame for them not being on board. It must be my fault somehow. What am I not explaining to you well enough? What are you not seeing? What are you seeing that I'm not? And that way we open up, you know, some dialogue because guess what? The reason that person might be spinning off might be a valid reason. It might be something that I need to address. It might be something that's gone wrong. It might be something that I'm not seeing strategically. So I've got to open my ears and my mind and listen and take that on board. And what that does, in addition to giving me indicators of what the problems are, in addition, it helps me build that relationship because I'm now talking to the person, I'm listening to what they're saying and building that relationship. I'm being honest with them. I'm developing trust and and that's how I'm going to bring somebody back, um, back on board and back into the team. And then you're going to have that team be that much more powerful having that person being a part of it and functioning at the highest possible level. Yes. And addressing whatever insights right, they right, have. Right, right. You know, the, the, this book is a great addition to the canon of, of leadership. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you taking some time to come and talk. I, I had a feeling this might've been a little bit 
outside of the scope of what you maybe thought the book was going to hit, but I, I think it has some really interesting connections with medicine and medical practice, and I really appreciate you coming and sharing some insight with us. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Uh, we appreciate you know uh, doctors, nurses, folks that work in the healthcare industry. You know, you guys are saving lives every day, and anything we can do to help you all out with your job, we will actually absolutely step up and do. Appreciate that, and thanks again so much. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.